book of Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to read together verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we have expressed to you our heart sentiments, our worship and our praise, what you mean to us. Words can never adequately describe that or express what our salvation is to us, what the hope of eternal glory is to us, or what our Savior means to us. Thank you for sending such a wonderful Savior. Thank you for sending such a wonderful sacrifice for our sins. And now we come with great expectation to your word, and we are not interested in the meaningless meanderings of a man's mind, but only in what your word has for us. We pray that you would help us to see truth in it, and may we see Jesus Christ, him lifted up, and gain an appreciation for our Savior this morning. We ask that you would be our teacher. In his name, amen. Well, I kind of wish it were Christmas time this morning. That kind of sounds odd coming from me because if you know me, then you know that I'm not one who really usually rushes into the Christmas season or snow or the end of the year or, or anything like that. I, and my wife, on the other hand, totally different. In fact, before this week is over, we are going to be in the full swing of the Christmas season at our house because beginning on November 8th every year, whether there's snow on the ground, whether we feel like it or not, no matter how much I protest, we begin listening to Christmas carols around my house. I, she would love to have 11 and a half months of perpetual Christmas celebration, two weeks off to, you know, hit the 4th of July, and, but other than that, just perpetual Christmas. That would be ideal for her. Now you say, why is that? Why so early? It's because when she was growing up in her home, her mother started playing Christmas carols on November 8th, so she gets it from her mother, I think her mother picked it up in the asylum when she was in there. <laughs> and so she has just, she's just carried that on all the way through our marriage for the last 14 years. Christmas season starts on November 8th. I think that it is completely wrong to begin to celebrate Christmas until you have stopped celebrating every other holiday season, including Thanksgiving. Until there's a deer hanging in the garage and you've watched football on Thanksgiving Day and you've eaten turkey and mashed potatoes, it's not right to start the next celebration of the next season. But around our house, November 8th. Now, I say I wish it were Christmas season because the text that we're about to look at is a wonderful Christmas passage. And I delayed as long as I could in getting to Philippians chapter 2. We just sort of drug our heels, took 14 weeks to go through chapter 1, inserted a deacon service in there, and I now here we are about eight weeks early. And so you're going to be getting your Christmas messages a little early this year. Philippians chapter 2 is all about he who existed in the form of God becoming man. That's a perfect Christmas passage, isn't it? 
In fact, one year for Christmas, I'm not sure if it was Christmas or a Christmas Eve service, I preached through Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And we talked about this one who existed in the form of God, who became a man, died on the death of the cross. Philippians chapter 2, James Montgomery Boyce says, is one of the most glorious passages in all of the New Testament. And you know why that is? Because as you read through that, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul takes us from eternity past, through the present, the li- uh, through the, the ministry and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, through our present time, and all the way to the future and into eternity future, all in the scope of Philippians chapter 2. So as I was studying this last week, I was just literally overwhelmed by the, the gems that are in this passage that just seem to flood over me like waves on an ocean shore, just one after another, seeing everything. Such a rich text. And so I said, well, we got two options. We could either, because I was intending to cover Philippians 2, 5 through 11 in two messages. So we, we got two options here. We could either kind of go through it rather quickly, and I could say, look, he was God, he became a man, he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, he died a death on the cross, he was exalted, and he will judge all men someday. Therefore, because of that humility, you ought to model Jesus Christ and and um, demonstrate that same type of mind that was in him. Or, we could sort of slow down a little bit and take each one of these theological waves as they come to us in sequence and sort of meditate on exactly what this means and exactly what this says. So we could go fast or slow. Now, which one do you think I chose? <laughs> so it may be Christmas before we're done with Philippians chapter 2. It might take us that long to get through this. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start looking at verse 5 today. We're going to go as far as we can before we run out of time, which is not much not very far into verse 6, to be honest with you. But before we begin, I want to give you sort of an overview of the context and an overview, generally speaking, of the whole passage. And there's just a few things I want you to notice. First of all, don't forget that this section dealing with the incarnation of our Lord is directly connected to its context. Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, you guys need to live together in harmony, in unity, in oneness of purpose, oneness of mind, oneness together. Verses 1 and 2 is all about living with each other. Verses 3 and 4 is all about living for each other. We are not to consider our own interests as more important than the interests of others. We're to look out for the interests of others. We are to be selfless. We are to be sacrificial. We are to demonstrate that type of humility and lowliness of mind. Then Paul in verse 5 says, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So we get to the end of verse 4, which we covered last week, and we say to ourselves, what type of attitude? Give, Paul, give me an example. Give me an illustration. Something crystal clear. Something concrete that I could look at and model my life after. And Paul says, if that's what you want, I've got a perfect illustration of this. Verse 5, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul explains that mind. So verses 5 through 11 is connected with the context of the oneness of mind, the humility of mind, the humility of heart that is willing to sacrifice and serve for others. Verses 1 to 4 is the principles. Verses 5 through 11 is the illustration of what Paul is talking about. Second, I want you to notice the theological issues that come up in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, I just want your mind to sort of, or your eyes to sort of wander down the page with me and look at all of the things that Paul mentions. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then he describes that attitude, who existing in the form of God. Now right there he takes us back to eternity past. Who Christ was and what Christ was before he came to earth. 
He existed in the form of God. He had an equality with God. That introduces us to the doctrine of the Trinity. He had an equality of God that he did not consider something to be held onto or grasped. The King James Version says he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Verse 7, he emptied himself. That's the incarnation. And took upon himself the form of a bondservant. That's his life and his ministry. And being found in appearance as a man or in the likeness of men. That's the humanity of Christ. So here in this passage we get the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. He was found in the likeness of men. In appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. That's the atonement of Christ. And his death on the cross. And his sacrifice for sin. Then... God has highly exalted Him. That's the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation and the glory of Christ. And someday, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that's the ultimate judgment and vindication of Christ. So there, in all that passage, we go from eternity past to eternity future. We cover the pre-existence of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the humbling of Christ, His life, His ministry, His sacrifice on the cross, His humanity, His resurrection, His exaltation, His ascension, and eventually the future judgment of Christ. Now, that's an incredibly Christological or theological passage, is it not? All of that is contained in that economy of words. It's amazing. Now, listen, anytime you have those kind of theological subjects brought up one after another in rapid sequence like that, you're going to get all kinds of questions that come up. When Paul says, for instance, when Paul says he existed in the form of God, what does he mean by form of God? Does he mean that he merely existed in the appearance of God? Does he mean that he merely existed in the shape of God or looked like God or did he just act like God or was he role-playing God? What does the form of God mean? When it says that he existed in the form of God and he had equality with God, what kind of equality is Paul talking about? Equality of function? Equality of position? Equality of authority? Or equality of nature? In what way was Christ equal to God? Just equal in the worship that He received? Or just equal in His function? Equal in authority? What is that equality? He emptied Himself. What does that mean? Emptied Himself of what? We sing the hymn, And Can It Be? He emptied Himself of all but love. Did He empty Himself of all but love and bleed and die for Adam's helpless race? What did He give up? Did He give up His deity? Did He give up His godhood? Did the second person of the Trinity exchange his deity for humanity and cease to be God and then become a man? What exactly does it mean to empty himself? And he became obedient. To whom? Whom did he become? Did he obey the Father? Did he obey himself? Was he obeying us? Was he obeying someone else or something else? To whom was he obedient? And then when Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, what event is that? And when is that going to happen? Did that happen in the past? Does that happen right now? Or is that happening sometime future. And what's that going to look like? All of those questions come up. A whole bunch of theological issues, a whole bunch of theological questions. The fourth thing I want you to notice, just generally speaking about the text, and this is important, verses 6 through 8 were in all likelihood a hymn of the early church. A hymn of the early church. H-Y-M-N. A hymn of the early church. And by hymn, I don't mean the type of of well-written song that went to music like you and I just sang, but a hymn in the sense of being a creedal statement or a statement of faith. Uh, They lived in in a very oral culture in those days, and they would pass things down orally. They would take traditions, history, statistics, facts, doctrines. They would put them into a metrical sort of stanza form, and they would recite these when they got together as Christians. 
And these were hymns in the early church. Sometimes they were sung together when God's people got together. There is in the Greek, it's a very clearly discernible uh, sort of metric hymnal type structure with subordinate clauses and all of that. And maybe some of your translations sort of have it in a poetic type of structure and not in a paragraph structure. It was a hymn. It was something that as Christians got together, they would sing this or they would recite this. They would take immense doctrinal truths, put them into some sort of a memorable stanza. Then when they got together, they would recite them to their children and sort of catechize their children. And then the children would grow up and newcomers would come in and they would say, what do you believe about Jesus? Oh, that's easy. We got a hymn for that. He existed in the form of God. He took upon himself and they would go through sort of the hymn structure. A lot of these hymns come into our New Testament, by the way. This is not the only place where we get one of these early Christian hymns. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. By common confession, Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh, uh, seen by angels, believed on in the world, preached among the Gentiles, uh, received up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 is another one of those confessional hymns. We think that we have one in Ephesians chapter 5. I think it's verse 14. 1 Corinthians 15 is another hymn. I passed on to you that which I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. That was a creedal structure, a creedal hymn. Now this raises all kinds of questions for those of you that like to read and all of this stuff. And I'm not going like, to... For instance, who wrote the hymn? Was it Paul? Did Paul write it? How widespread was it? By how far does it predate Paul? How far does this hymn go back? Did Paul just quote the hymn? Did he alter the hymn? And if you want, you can read pages and pages and pages of that on infinitum ad nauseum until you're sick. And I'm not going to jump into that bottle of chloroform and put you all to sleep with all of that. And you say, well, too late, you're already there. I drank plenty of that chloroform this week trying to sort through it, but here's the, here's the basis of it. The hymn likely goes back and predates Paul. And likely what happened is Paul took a well-recognized confession of faith and he quoted it in Ephesians chapter, Philippians chapter 2 to prove a point. Much like I would quote a hymn or a chorus, the words to it to illustrate a point, that's what Paul does here in Philippians chapter 2. So it's a hymn. Now here, I have a challenge for singers and songwriters who are among us, and it's this. Would somebody please put this to music? Philippians chapter 2. Would somebody please put this to music? All of the doctrinal content that is in here. Now there's some people that have sort of taken a stab at it, you came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high, right? Well, okay, that kind of demonstrates, that kind of has this, the steps that Jesus took, right? It's, it's an accurate path, but it really doesn't tell us the humility that was involved. When he came from heaven to earth, what did he give up? That's what Philippians 2 is talking about. What did he give up when he came from heaven to earth? It uh, really doesn't talk about that final Act when all men will bow the knee and worship Him. There's a chorus that I really love, Meekness and Majesty. Meekness and Majesty, Manhood and Deity, in perfect harmony, the man who was God. Uh, kneeling so tenderly, stooping in something, and forget the words, and washing our feet. And that really addresses the humility of our Lord. But it doesn't really address what the sacrifice that He bought or that He purchased paid for us. And it really doesn't address... In the end, what is going to happen? So here's my challenge. Mel, would you put all of this to music? <laughs> By next week, you sing it, I'll preach it, and we'll have a well-defined service. So much of... Listen, look at it this way. This hymn gives us a glimpse into what the early Christians were able to say by common confession. This was their doctrinal statement through the apostolic churches. All Christians could recite this type of theology. 
That's so much different from the Jesus is my boyfriend, give him a try, he won't let you down type of music that we hear now coming out of modern day evangelicalism, isn't it? It's pathetic. You go back to the early church and you walk into a church and what would you get? You would get this type of doctrinal statement. The sweep from eternity past to eternity future. So it's a hymn. So Mel will have something for us next week. And we'll move on to verse 5. So that's just generally speaking. Let's pick it up in verse 5 and let's see what the air up here keeps blowing my pages over. Must be the hot air. I wonder where it's coming from. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now the word attitude, you recognize that word. It's phrenéo. We've seen that through the rest of Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 27 says we are to strive together with one mind. The word means a mind, a way of thinking. Uh, we are to be of one mind, intent on one purpose. That's the word, phreneo. It means it, it refers to a way of thinking or a mindset. And do you notice what the Apostle Paul says? He says, have it in you. Have it in you. This is a command. It is your responsibility and my responsibility to see to it that we think the way Jesus thought. To see to it that we adopt the same way of thinking, the same manner of living, the same attitude that he had. And that attitude is all commanded to us in verses 1 through 4. The thinking of others is more important than ourselves, regarding them that way. Looking out for the interests of others and not just ourselves. That selfless type of giving. Paul says, you are to have this attitude in yourselves. That mind which was in Jesus Christ is to be in you. It's our responsibility to see to it that we think that way. This is not... You don't just wake up one morning with the mind of Christ. It doesn't happen. You don't wake up and say, oh, all of a sudden today I'm a selfless giving individual. We must purpose in our minds and purpose in our hearts that we are going to model the same type of mindset, the same type of attitude that the Lord Jesus had. Now verse 6, Paul describes that. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who being that is existing or or existing in a form of God. He was in and he existed in the form of God. Now friends, with that statement, the Apostle Paul takes us back before the Incarnation. One of the things that people ask is, when was this? When did he exist in the form of God? Is Paul talking about after he came here that he existed in the form of God? Or is Paul talking about before he came here that he existed in the form of God? Do you notice the chronology of the entire passage? He existed in the form of God chronologically then, he did not regard that equality with God a thing to be held on to. Then he humbled himself and became a bondservant. Then he humbled himself and became obedient to the death. Then God had bestowed on him the name. There's a chronology through the whole passage. This refers to that period of time before he came to earth, before the incarnation. He existed in the form of God. He existed with the Father in eternity past. And the Apostle Paul doesn't say ever in the passage that there was a time when he came into being. When Paul says he existed in the form of God, he takes us back as far as time would take us back. You can't go back any farther. What was he before he existed in the form of God? What was he? He existed in the form of God. That's as far back as you go. You go back to creation and he was there. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says his goings forth are from eternity. Go back as far as you want in your mind and Christ is there existing in the form of God. In the beginning was the what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go back to creation. The Word was there. Go back before the creation of the world to the creation of angels, and the Word was there. Go back a million years before angels were created. 
Multiply that by a million years. Go back as far as your mind can possibly fathom, all the way back to that point, as far back as you can go in your mind, and Christ was there, existing in the form of God. Jesus not only was aware of His own pre-existence, but He actually asserted it many times. Book of John. Before Abraham was, I am. Now for those of you who may be new to this whole Bible thing, Abraham existed before Jesus. A long time before Jesus. And Jesus said, before Abraham ever came into being, I was. I existed. John chapter 17, Jesus prayed on the night before He was crucified. He said, Father, glorify Me now together with You, with the glory that I had with You before the world was. John 17.24, Father, You loved Me before the foundation of the world. And here in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul says He existed in the form of God, we're all of a sudden transported back prior to the Incarnation, back as far as you can go, to Jesus Christ eternally existing in the form of God. Now my purpose here this morning is not to prove to you the deity of Christ. I'm not going to try and marshal together all the evidences and prove to you that Christ is God. As Christians, we don't need that. You don't need to prove to Christians that Christ is God. That's like proving to the solar system that the sun is the center and the source of its light and heat. You don't need it. You can't even be a Christian and deny the deity of Jesus Christ. We know that. Anybody who has been illumined by the sun doesn't need proof that the sun exists. It's the same thing with the deity of Christ. Anybody who has been saved knows that they have been saved by God and by God in human flesh. So my only point here in Philippians chapter 2 is just to show you what this passage gives to our understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did. So I'm not going to prove to you the deity of Christ, but we affirm together before Him that He existed prior to His coming here on earth in the form of God. And He, by the way, is the only man who has ever lived who existed prior to coming here. Contrary to what the Mormons will tell you, none of you existed before you were born here on earth. Jesus Christ is the only one who pre-existed. And Paul says He pre-existed in the form of God. Now what does the word form mean? I mean, look, if you wanted to say that Jesus Christ was God, isn't there a clearer way of saying it than saying He existed in the form of God? Doesn't the word form kind of add a whole bunch of confusion into the mix and sort of throw us off the track? Couldn't Paul just have said He existed as God and settle it? Because the Jehovah's Witnesses will read this passage and they'll say, He merely existed in the form, the appearance, the shape, the activity of God. But a form, of course, is something different than what the form represents. It doesn't mean that He is God, but rather that He existed in the shape or the appearance or the form of God. A little confusing, isn't it? What does the word form of God mean? Is it affirming that Jesus Christ was God? Well, in order to understand what the word form of God or the phrase form of God means, it's important to understand what Paul does not say. And listen, I'm going to go through a whole bunch of knots for you so I can, at the end, tell you what it is. There are four different words that Paul could have used for form that could be translated form or appearance. Four different Greek words. The first one is idos. Idos. And idos is something that has an appearance of something, but has no connection to the substance or the reality. When you look up in the clouds, for instance, and you see the form of a dog, or the form of a rabbit, or the form of a car, or a castle, or something like that, you're seeing, in Greek, an idos. You're seeing something that has the apparent shape of something, but no connection to the reality. So you look up and you see the form of a dog. You're seeing the idos of a dog. But you understand 
at least I hope you do, that the cloud is not a dog and there's not a real dog in the cloud. You understand that, right? What you do understand is that what you're seeing is basic proportions, general contours, sort of the shape of that in the clouds, a, a representation, but that idos has no connection to anything that's reality or substance. And sometimes when you go outside, it's not even readily apparent to people that you're with. You say, oh, look at the little dog in the clouds. And they don't see it. And say, we have to say, well, between the mountain peak and the, the big tree, you see it. That's his nose. And, and then after a while, they, oh, yeah, okay, I see it now. Right? That's an idos. It's something that has the general appearance, but really doesn't have a correspondence to anything that's real. A second word that Paul could have used, by the way, he doesn't use the word idos. He doesn't say Jesus existed in the idos of God. He doesn't use that word. A second word that Paul could have used is the word icon. An icon was a statue or a portrait or a painting that was intended to resemble with a one-to-one correspondence the thing that it represents. Then idos is a derived image because it has its its origin in something that really did exist in time and really was uh, real. Let me give you an example. I'm holding in my hand a dollar bill. Okay, On the front of the dollar bill is an idos. Whose idos is on the front of a one dollar bill? George Washington's IDOS. Now you understand that this is really not George Washington, right? You understand that. It, it is connected to reality in what way? That this thing actually represents something that does or did exist. This is an IDOS. There really was a George Washington, a President George Washington, that we write, we sketch out a picture, or you might create a statue. Sorry, I said IDOS, I'm an icon. You create a statue or sketch out a picture which is an icon of George Washington. And we recognize that this is intended to represent accurately and portray accurately this thing that did exist. That's an icon. This is not an idos because it's not just a general picture that doesn't really have any connection to anything real. It's an icon because it actually represents something that did exist, an icon. A statue is an icon. You have a statue of Paul Revere. We know there was a real Paul Revere. We look at the statue and we say, oh, there was a Paul Revere. This is a statue of Paul Revere. That's an icon. Paul doesn't say Jesus existed in the icon of God. There's a third word that Paul could have used. He could have used the word skia. A skia is a shadow of something. A skia is an outline of something. A skia is intended to sort of give the general shape so that you understand what is being sketched or the sh- what is being cast as a shadow, but it's not intended to really, truly represent somebody or something, a skia. For instance, you've all seen a political cartoon. You see the political cartoon and you look at the person in the political cartoon and you understand that the picture there is not intended to be an exact representation of this person. It is intended a lot of times just to let us know who's being drawn and usually to highlight some weird feature, some particular feature, a mole, a bad haircut, a big nose, a big chin, double chin, barrel chest, something like that. Some feature is usually uh, sort of highlighted with a skia. You remember the old Alfred Hitchcock movies when you had the outline? Right? And the outline was intended to show his sort of forward forehead his little pointed nose and the the pudgy cheeks and the barrel chest of Alfred Hitchcock. And then after a while, he would walk in and fill up that outline, that shadow. That's a skia. So it really is representing something that does exist, but really in a more cursory general outline type fashion. The Apostle Paul does not say that Jesus Christ existed in the skia of God. There is a fourth word that was used that could be translated form or appearance, and it is the word morphe. A morphe is that form, hold on a second, Chip. A morphe is that form which strikes our sight and our senses. 
It is that which we see that sort of hits us, but amorphe is more than that. Amorphe is the outward representation of an inward reality. Come on up here. Thank you, big guy. I don't do this often. What am I holding in my hand? Somebody say it loud. A hammer. Thank you. I always count on Scott to get in there. A hammer. This is the morphe of a hammer. I'm holding in my hand the morphe of a hammer. You know what you're seeing? You're seeing the form, the morphe of the hammer. You know why you see the morphe of a hammer? Because it is in reality, in essence, in substance, a hammer. You get this? Now if I open up the paper here, on the top of the hammer, and I find that, oh, it is indeed a hammer. Underneath here is dented that. Not only that, but it's a 49ers hammer. (laughs) Which, easy, easy. Which means that it's rather weak right now, but we're hoping it'll be stronger someday. (laughs) It is a hammer. Now, if I unwrapped this and I found that it was a dowel connected to a cleverly shaped coat hanger that that merely gave the form of a hammer, then we wouldn't use morphe. We would say this existed in the skia or it existed in the icon of a hammer, but not in the morphe. We use the term morphe or they use the term morphe in the Greek because when something strikes our senses and we see, oh, it has all of the outward manifestations, all of the outward characteristics of a hammer. So it is the morphe of a hammer because what strikes us is the appearance, but it is in reality exactly that, a hammer. It's not a picture of a hammer. It's not a shadow of a hammer. It's not a vague representation of a hammer. It has the essence and the nature and is in reality a hammer. Therefore, what you see with your eyes is the morphe of a hammer. So Paul says that Jesus Christ existed in the morphe of God. What you saw was all of the outward manifestations of what was inwardly real. What was He in reality? What was He in substance? What was He really? God. He was God. And what we see with our eyes, if we were able to step into eternity past and stand in His presence, would be all of the majesty, all of the splendor, all of the glory, all of the outward visible manifestations of what was his inward essence and reality. Now looking at that, you realize the Apostle Paul could not have been any clearer, could he? He did not exist in the skia of God, the idos of God, the icon of God, but the morphe. What you saw was what it really was in reality. He existed in the form of God. That is a clear representation, a clear statement, as clear as he could get of the deity of Christ. And I say, why does he use the word morphe then? He's very clear in using the word morphe, but why does he talk about form at all? Because what the Apostle Paul wants us to realize is not that he just came from heaven to earth, not that he was just God and became man, but what the Apostle Paul wants us to realize when we read this is that what he left was all of that splendor, all of that glory, all of that majesty which attended Him because of who He was. He wants us to see in our minds 
the form, the outward visibility and the outward manifestation of who He was. That is what He left. That is what He was. It was not just merely that He was God and became man, not just that He left heaven and came to earth, but that He left, when He left heaven, He left all of the form, all of the majesty, all of the glory that attended Him because of who He was. Now, if you read the Da Vinci Code, which I wouldn't recommend that you do, and if you do and you're reading the Da Vinci Code, it's because you have far too much time on your hands and you need to come and see me because I'll give you something to do. But if you're reading the Da Vinci Code, you will see in there that Dan Brown makes the assertion that Christians never really believed in the deity of Christ until about 325 A.D. when the Council of Nicaea got together and they refuted Arius the heretic and adopted the doctrines of Athanasius of Alexandria. That's all a bunch of baloney. This hymn of the Christian church goes back to before Paul wrote Philippians, the common confession among Christians was that he existed in the morphe of God. Christians didn't adopt the view or the doctrine of the deity of Christ 300 years after the fact. They had this from the earliest days of the Christian church. Now why do we focus on this and why is this so important? Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, because since Jesus Christ is in the form of God, you and I can truly know what God is like. You and I can truly know what God is like. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus said, you still don't get it, Philip? If your eyes have seen me, you have seen the essence of who God is. Other prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, and others would come onto the scene and step onto the the stage of human history, and some of them would see God, and they would tell us what they saw. They would tell us what God was like, what God's will was like. But when Jesus stepped onto the scene, He didn't have to just tell us what God was like. He lived out what God was like because God walked this earth. He existed in the form of God, and He left that form to come down here and to walk among us. And because of that, you and I can truly know what God is like. You want to know how God acts? You look at Jesus. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. How does God handle pressure? You look at Jesus. Jesus gives to us the fullness of God in bodily form. He is the exact representation of the nature of God, Hebrews 1.3 says. You want to know what God is like? His name was Jesus. And we get the image of who that God is and what that God was like when we read the revelation of what happened when He came. Second, this has implications for our worship, does it not? Do you understand that Jesus Christ is the Christian's God? He is our God. We sing to Him. It is appropriate to pray to Him. It is appropriate to obey Him. In fact, Jesus Christ not only received worship while He was here on earth, He actually demanded it. He said, you cannot honor the Father if you're not going to honor Me. You want to honor the Father? You honor Me. You want to glorify Him? You glorify Me. You want to obey Him? You obey Me. So He is quite appropriately the God for all Christians. So we worship Him, we honor Him, we obey Him, we render adoration to Him because He is our God. He is our God in human flesh. Now the third implication for us in this passage and why I'm I'm sort of camping on this this morning, we cannot really appreciate the rest of this passage until we understand the beginning of verse 6. Until you and I can understand what it meant for Him to exist in the form of God, we cannot understand the rest of the passage. Now think for just a moment what that means to Him to have existed in the form of God. It meant that He had absolutely no needs. No needs. God didn't create you because He needed somebody to talk to. God didn't create man because He needed to display His glory. He didn't create us because He was lonely. 
He didn't create us because He needed worship. He needed community. He needed fellowship. He needed friendship. He needed us in any way. He didn't need anything. He still does not need anything. He is the self-sustained sustainer of all things. And He is without eternally any need. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they had fellowship, worship together amongst themselves. They had no need for anything outside of them. No need to be glorified. Everything that God did, He did by a matter of His choice, by His own perfect will. He didn't need anything. So Christ existed in the form of God without any needs whatsoever. Not only that, but He existed in the form of God totally untainted by sin. Totally untouched by sin. Sinful hands had never handled Him. Sinful lips had never kissed Him. Sinful people had never hugged Him or touched His garments. He had been untainted and untouched and unhandled and unaffected by any sin at all. And He existed in that state without any need, without any limitation, with all of the conveniences and the comforts and the prerogatives of deity. He existed with all of that majesty, all of that glory, all of that splendor, in perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect comfort, Perfect glory. He had everything at His fingertips. He controlled the world, upheld the world, sustained the world. He enjoyed the worship of angels. That is what He left. That is the form of God. Now everything else for the rest of this passage, He didn't consider it robbery or a thing to be held on to. He humbled Himself, became a servant, died on a cross, All of those friends are steps down. Every one of them is a step down. And down, 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 down he came to the lowest point that he could come. It doesn't get any lower than dying on a cross. And what Paul wants us to understand is that when he existed before he came to this earth, he couldn't have been any higher. He was the highest being in the whole universe. There was no place for him to go but down. He couldn't be exalted anymore. He couldn't have been honored and glorified anymore. He couldn't have received any more worship. He he needed nothing. There was nothing for him to gain because he had everything. So everything that he did from that point forward is a step down. It's a humbling. It is a giving up. It is a going out. It is a stepping down. It is a condescension. And before we can appreciate just how far down he came, We have to spend the time meditating and thinking about just how high up he was. And then all of a sudden, this one who existed in the form of God and became a man, we begin to appreciate it's not just that he left heaven for earth, but he left the form of God himself. How does your God act? It's the rest of this passage. You want to see what God is like? That will show you what he's like existed in the form of God. And he said to himself, I'm not going to regard my equality with God as a thing to be grasped. The King James Version says, "As a, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Well, we've looked this week at what the form of God is, and we'll look next week at what that equality with God and not considering it something to be grasped meant. That's a step down, folks. It's the first step down from the highest plateau. We're on our way through the rest of this passage to the lowest that low can go. As far down. He was as far up as he could be and he's going to go as far down as he can go. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are our great God and our Savior. We worship and adore and thank You for Your Son. 
We worship Him this morning and our hearts are filled with gratitude at the realization that He had everything and He gave all of that up and emptied Himself so that He might come here and serve a sinful, fallen, wretched people like us. Thank you for so great a salvation and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.